So I hear people say things either to me or in passing um, about wanting God to speak to them. They, and and what's, what's happening is there's a specific issue that they want more clarity on than they've either received from the scripture or something else. But the way they say it would indicate that they really want God to talk to them. And this always is interesting to me for a host of reasons. One, when God speaks to people directly, it's very scary. Almost every time. Not every time in Scripture, but almost every time. So that's interesting in and of itself. But the other thing that I want to say, and I haven't yet found the, the most gentle and clear way to say it is, do you know all of the promises of Scripture? And then, through gratefulness to those promises, through thankfulness, do you then follow all the commands? Because if so, let's have a conversation about that kind of prayer, which is a wonderful gift to us, where we can have a conversation and find out the answers to those specific questions. But oftentimes, when someone says they want God to speak, they're marginalizing the promises and the commands that we do have in Scripture. And one of the reasons is the scripture doesn't just jump off the page and show itself as interesting to us for a, a number of reasons. One, we don't necessarily know how to read critically anymore. Another reason is there's actually a lot of mundane, boring stuff in the scripture that has a real essential purpose, but we don't read it that way, and so we miss the profoundness of it. The story of Mary and Joseph and the birth of Jesus, the Word becoming flesh, is as mind-blowing of a story as exists in human history. And yet it includes all these random details that you and I would not remember if asked. And at this point in the story, it's a scary and uncomfortable time. Jesus is born probably around 6 BC. We didn't get the calendar totally right back then. And after the Magi leaves, probably been about two years, and Joseph hears in a dream to go back to Egypt, because Archelaus is reigning as one of Herod's kids. There are years there where Joseph and Mary don't hear from the Lord, as far as we know. So one of the reasons I was bringing up that we desire for God to speak is Joseph and Mary probably did too. There were years where it felt like God was silent. God isn't silent. They had the Old Testament and the the traditions of the Jewish followers of God at the time. You and I have the Old and New Testament, but don't we feel that way? Don't we feel like he's being silent at times? And I say that not because I want us to think of Joseph and Mary's story as anecdotal, but because I want us to see that followers of God feel alone at times. They want more information. They want more direction. They want more clarity. The life of faith is one of trust. And by that, I don't mean mindless. Christianity is not an irrational religion. We're not asked to check our brain at the door, but it is one of trust. We don't always get as specific answers as we want. We don't always hear from God as quickly as we might like. So we learn to trust. Then we learn to... We we become more and more familiar with the promises. And then because of the promises, we're thankful... And we follow the commands. And in between, we learn to pray like a psalmist because the world is a disordered mess. I was speaking with one of our older members of the church this morning and all five of her kids are still close to her and each other. And she said, how rare is that? And I said, it's pretty rare. 
She's 92. At that point, to have all five children still in solid relationship with parents and with each other is rare. And listen, if that's your story, I'm so glad. I'm so excited for you to have such a joyful holiday season. But for many of us, it's a disorienting time. So the life of faith is one where we learn to believe and trust in the promises. And then in thankfulness, we follow the commands. In between, we pray like a psalmist and we read texts like this with some imaginative energy. If we read the Bible the way that we watch sitcoms, I think your faith would be alive. And so would mine. Joseph and Mary are tired at this point and on the run as we get to verses 19 through 23. And maybe even the angels are tired. I'll explain that in a second. If you have your Bible, I'm looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, did the first angel not get the full memo? How come there had to be two dreams? I was practicing the sermon and I was like, why did there have to be two dreams? Was there a time gap? Like... Maybe that doesn't interest you. Maybe some of you have studied this. You can email me after the service and let me know. But I'm like, could we have spirit? Like, could Joseph have just gotten one more full night's sleep? The guy had a lot on his plate. Is that too much? I'm just looking at the text and asking questions. Trying to read with an imaginative and critical mind. And being warned in the dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So two dreams later for Joseph, the story gets kind of boring, right? Like what's interesting about Jesus living in Nazareth? Nothing. And the story must have boring moments because that's where it becomes relatable, right? Like what great story doesn't have time where we are given a chance to feel that we can relate to the person, the hero of the story, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like even the most intense action movies, there are moments where the hero's not heroing. And that's where we relate to them. It's often the difference between a good story and a great story. How much more relatable is the character? I read a three-volume biography of Winston Churchill, about 3,000 pages, which I really enjoyed. And I say it out loud like, wow, <laughs> why did I do that? The most interesting section is the middle section, book two, which is about 1932 to 1940. You know, Winston Churchill had positions of power in the British government before World War II, and he lost them for various reasons that historians argue about. So from 1932 to 1940, he was an almost unknown political presence in Britain. His voice was not heard. He saw the Nazi threat and no one paid any attention. He was out of power. That's the series where, or that's the point in his life where we can, beca- we can get closer to relating to him. He had to write almost incessantly to pay for the lifestyle that he wanted. Do you guys know Miles Davis stopped playing the trumpet for five years? In the middle of his career, 
For five years, he put his trumpet down and did not play it. And he was wealthy enough that he just kind of hung out in his apartment and painted. And the reason that that's interesting is, here's Miles Davis who changed music and is a phenomenal jazz musician in his own right, who just stopped playing. Well, why is that interesting? Well, it's not interesting unless he's Miles Davis, but because he's Miles Davis, it's interesting that it got mundane and boring and he just kind of hung around in his apartment. The story needs to get boring because the claim of Christianity is that Jesus is both God and man. Do you know any man that didn't have some years that were less eventful than others? The other reason the story gets boring is that what's, that's what happened. All these details, and you might get tired of me making this point. We're going to move on to another sermon series after this. But for Advent, it's, a, it's essential that you and I notice all these details. Herod, Egypt, Archelaus, Nazareth, Judea, Galilee. Why? Because those details form the historical backbone of the story. I cannot stand up here and convince you that angels can speak to people in dreams. I can tell you that Josephus, the Jewish historian who was not a follower of Jesus, talks about Archelaus. And because of Josephus, we know that Archelaus was actually a bad king. He got exiled to France because he was terrible. And you're like, don't know that I care about Archelaus and Josephus and Gaul that's now France, that tells us that this text is reliable. The gospel of Jesus, as recorded by Matthew, is historically reliable. I will say this about um, dreams and the supernatural. What philosophy presents that there's not more to this world than what we can see and understand? Are we so confident that we have no space in our imaginations or historical minds to believe that there's anything else to this world? The story gets boring, which caused problems for Jesus. I don't know how familiar you are with the Synoptic Gospels. Those are, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They follow kind of the similar storyline. John has a whole different agenda. And in fact, his Gospel really answers a lot of the questions that Matthew, Mark, and Luke bring up. But if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, and John to a lesser extent, you'll see that people struggled with Jesus' humanity. Did you ever read that um, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus' family actually tries to stop him from talking twice? Did you know that happened? Like his mother and his brothers come and they're like, so all this preaching stuff (laughs) happens twice. You know, when Jesus speaks, oftentimes people, there will be a statement, something like, they were astounded that he spoke with authority. And on the one hand, maybe that's because there weren't a lot of teachers who spoke with authority. That's also an allusion to like, isn't that the carpenter from Nazareth? How does he know all this stuff about God? And should we even listen to him? There's another small part of the Gospels that I know troubles a lot of students of uh, Christianity. And that's when it says that Jesus could do no great work there. And they're like, does that mean he could only have fed like 500 people? Not 5,000? Does that mean that like he could only calm waves for like 200 yards instead of 600? Does that mean he could only heal like the flu, but not like a compound fracture? No. Because the power 
of Jesus' gospel was displayed by the miracles, but the actual great work was him saying, you cannot save yourself, which he said by saying, repent. And in fact, he said he is the way and the truth and the life. But the reason that he could do no great work in certain cities is they would see his humanity. Some of them remember where he came from and they did not listen to the gospel message, which is you can't save yourself. But if you trust Jesus, you're reconciled to God and forgiven of your sins. That's the promise that he will save them from their sins in the Advent narrative. This happened to me in a dramatically lesser extent. I have no deity in me, though I'm made in the image of God like you. In 2008, I did my first funeral. Very emotional. Uh, It was a family funeral. And um, the pieces of the funeral all went together pretty well, which if you know me, I'm not a planner, so I was pleasantly surprised that the readers went up at the right time and the songs went okay and all that. And then I preached for about nine minutes, cried four times, and was pleased with what I said. And I saw my two aunts after the service, Diane and Leah, and I said, how did it go? And they said, all we could see was your seven-year-old self. We have no idea what you said. And in the moment, I was like, huh. But that's one of the reasons it was so challenging for Jesus' family and for those that grew up near him and even for regular people because Jesus was not especially good-looking. Jesus did not shine like except at the transfiguration, like he didn't look different than others, and yet he lived a sinless life. And so despite his family trying to stop him from speaking, despite people being astounded at speaking with authority, despite the fact that at times he could not do great work because people would not listen to him, is what that means. The story is still compelling. You guys remember Nathaniel, the disciple? When someone starts telling him about Jesus, remember what he says? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That was a saying at the time. And yet, this is part of how the story compels. You know the book of James in the Bible? That's not the disciple James. That's Jesus' little brother. How many of you have a little brother? You're sitting with him. Could you convince your little brother... That's your deity. (laughs) Even more compelling to me is the fact that John the Baptist worshipped Jesus. So I have a little brother. His name's Alex. For a time, I probably could have convinced him that I was without sin. But my older cousins, Amy and Trace, (laughs) I mean, could you convince your older cousin? That you were a deity? The book of Jude has one of the most beautiful benedictions in the Bible. Another brother of Jesus. And none of them believed, John the Baptist did. The other two did not believe during Jesus' earthly ministry. But then they saw him resurrected from the dead. And they called him Lord. And they believed they needed to repent. Admit that they had been trying to save themselves and that that was impossible. And turn to him. You and I need Jesus' regular story because what happens through his work, through his teaching, through his death and then resurrection is the world is given a second Adam. You know that story, Adam and Eve. God creates the world. He calls it good. 
He gives Adam and Eve free will, and with it, they stop trusting his good heart. You and I live in the wreckage of that world. The New Testament calls Jesus a second Adam. And what he does through living the sinless life, dying the death that sin requires, and rising from the dead to prove it is, he began the process of mending the world. And for all those that put their trust in him, joy is purchased and peace that doesn't mean we experience the world as peaceful but it does mean that our hearts are at rest and as a second the reason the second Adam matters to you today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday is Jesus coming as a man and then proving that he's a second Adam not only reconciles us to God, but we know that He can relate. Are you nervous about the holidays? He can relate. Is your family a challenge? He can relate. Read Mark chapter 3 if you don't believe me. Has this year been marked by suffering and you're sad? And the alone time seems daunting. He can relate. Is your family full of joy? He can relate to that on a human level also. So I have one simple encouragement for you as you either enjoy or just try to get through the holidays, either one. When you pray, include in that, thank you, that you can relate. And some of you are like, but I'm not sure I even understand that. It's all right. It's actually pretty complex, deep theology. For the Logos to become the Sarks is mind-blowing. That's Greek, for the word becoming flesh. For the two to come together is pretty mind-blowing. But you and I can still pray the things we only partially understand. So whether you're praying right before you go to bed, Lord's Prayer, with your journal, in the morning, include in that thank you, Jesus, that you can relate. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you can relate to our stories. I also thank you for your work which reconciles us to God. I thank you for this season which remembers imperfectly the gift of you, the beauty of the joy that you purchased, the light that entered the world. I ask for those that have a joyful season ahead of them that you would multiply their joy and make the time delightfully long-seeming. For those that this season is a challenge, Lord, fill them with your Holy Spirit, that they might experience and delight in the peace and the joy that you purchased on your cross and proved the power of in your resurrection. Jesus, we thank you that you can relate. 
help our imaginations and our hearts and minds as we sing this morning and for some this evening and throughout this season about you and the beautiful, profound fact that you came in the flesh. Amen.